It's uh, great to have you on Calm Radio. Thank you so much, and thanks so much for having me. Well, just first of all, uh, can you start by telling us uh, a little bit about yourself, you know, who you are, your mob, where you're from? Yeah, of course. Um, I hail from the beautiful Pilbara. I was actually up in Alice Springs about two months ago, so I love that red dirt and gum trees, and of course we had a bit of rain, so that combination of, of smells <laughs> very, very um, endearing to me coming from the Pilbara. My traditional mob are actually in Yummel from between Port Hedland and Marble Bar area. I'm trained as a psychologist and run my own business out of Perth, but we work obviously across the whole of Australia for the past 21 years. And your work within that psychology space, what, what got you involved? Why did you want to get involved in that space? Oh, I guess it was pretty obvious. And I always say I came down for, as a young kid. I did school the year or distance education and get into university, so it was quite challenging being so remote. For some reason, I set upon a path that I wanted to become a psychologist at about 15 years of age. I can't necessarily explain that. It's just something that I read about and decided that I wanted to do. So I came down full of beans from remote area studying at the University of Western Australia. And I guess for me, it was fairly shocking that when I was in sitting in lecture theatres, that Aboriginal people were basically invisible in all of the training provided to practitioners and all of the evidence-based treatments. And it just was pretty obvious to me that the training provided to psychologists should actually match the statistics. So we're seeing Aboriginal people having amongst the highest rates of particularly child suicide in the world, as most of your listeners would be aware, and yet you go into training and the training just wasn't matching what most psychologists were dealing with every day. So I guess I had a bit of a fire in my belly and passion for my people, and so I set upon a path to ensure that future practitioners didn't have to experience the invisibility of Aboriginal people in their training. Some exciting news recently with uh, Indigenous student, uh, Indigenous psychologist students are uh, being awarded inaugural scholarships through the Dr Tracy Westerman Aboriginal Psychology Scholarships Program. Can you just start, first of all, by telling us about the actual program itself? Uh, how and why did it come about? Well, I guess um, in 2018, I had a pretty big year. I was West Australia's finalist for the Australian of the Year. And within that, I guess it gave me a fairly big platform. I've always been very passionate, obviously, about mental health and the escalating rates of, of Indigenous child suicide and have self-funded. I don't have a cent of government funding myself, so um, have self-funded um, unique screening tools for early stages of risk for Aboriginal kids. I guess what I was saying a lot was that, it's, realistically, there was really a government a lack of government action on reports that were coming out. And I guess where it was triggered from was the coroner's inquiry, the recent one, into the 13 suicide deaths of beautiful young Indigenous kids in the Kimberley that pretty much pointed to the fact that all of those kids suffered from what was called a systems failure. What actually made it really distressing was that not one of those children of the 13 that died had a mental health assessment. Families for decades have been crying out in remote communities and as most of your listeners would know in Alice Springs, it's exactly the same. There's just a lack of access to specialist services, psychologists, you know, best practice programs to help their children. And the way I put it to people is that imagine having a child caught in a group of mental illness and there are no services to help and when you do find a service, the cultural barriers between you are so great that any opportunities for healing are effectively lost. So I rang Curtin University literally that day. I'm a graduate from Curtin University. I did my master's and PhD there. And I decided to put my own money into it. So I'd put $50,000 of my own money into starting up the Dr. Tracy Westerman Aboriginal Psychology Scholarship Program, which is basically $10,000 a year for over five years. And the idea behind that is that we'd actually identify Indigenous students studying psychology 
but they had to have remote and rural connections like myself. Because what I knew, ultimately, is that when you're from the bush, when you grow up in remoteness, you want to go back there. You want to go back there and help your family and your communities. So to me, every single report was saying the same thing, crying out for specialist services, crying out for specialist programs. And it became pretty obvious that it was something that could have a really direct and immediate impact on those high-risk communities. And definitely having that want and desire to go back and, and work within those communities is, is a very important aspect in terms of you know achieving, wanting to achieve those goals and strive towards those. I guess as well, it's, it's oh, a very important thing in terms of having you know, the mob themselves actually working within the communities. Yeah, and look, I unfortunately look too many bereaved families in the face and it's a feeling that never leaves you, really. And what I see in the eyes of, I guess, young Indigenous psychologists is that same passion. It's not actually just the money, the psychology scholarship program. I'm actually personally mentoring the recipients as well because it's really tough, you know, as much as we love our communities, being a psychologist and going into the areas where we're from is actually really tough. It can be quite traumatising, and so the scholarship is not, it's about funding, yeah, but it's also about wrapping your arms around these kids so that we don't have a reality that, you know, generational child suicides continue to exist in our remote communities without at least having our best crack at providing these communities with the services that every Australian child should have a right to. Now, w- words such as, you know, national crisis have, have been used when describing the rates of Indigenous suicide that we're seeing at the moment. How would you describe... Mm-hmm those levels that we're seeing amongst the mob, those levels of suicide? For me, you know, I don't like using words like crisis because basically what it does is it runs the risk of then normalising suicide. What I'm actually much more interested in is things that we know will actually prevent suicides. The Kimberley tends to have, you know, obviously generational. It's been going for about two or three decades now. But there are also a lot of Aboriginal communities that actually don't have suicides. And so what we haven't done very well is we haven't learnt from those communities who seem to be buffered from uh, suicide risk. And I think if we focus too much on crisis and, and what's actually going wrong, we stop looking at the things that are being effective and provide us with our best opportunities of prevention. So unfortunately, there are significant gaps in what's actually being provided to, again, those high-risk communities. And so risk just remains unabated. And what that means is that we're not actually providing our Indigenous communities with things that the average Australian should actually receive, and that is intervention, early intervention-based programs. They just don't exist in remote communities. So it's no surprise to me, unfortunately, we have generations of suicide. Where the suicides occur, they carry the burden for the rest of Australia almost. So, yes, we do have extremely high rates of suicide, but we need to learn from those communities a bit more that actually don't have suicides or those individuals that come from the Kimberley that don't become suicidal. There's something about resilience there that, that provide a better opportunity for prevention. So, so then there's essentially a role for communities to play in terms of curbing some of these rates then? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our work that we do, I guess, um, whole of community intervention programs is what we do is we skill people up around identifying risk. Early intervention is a really brilliant thing. I mean, Martin Seligman has done a bit of work around this and I've worked mostly with kids. He's actually shown if we teach kids optimism in, in middle grade positivity, optimism, coping skills, coping strategies, effective communication, anger management, problem solving, all those things that we know reduce suicide risk, we can eliminate 50% of depression. So that's what I'm talking about here, that we're not actually, because we're so focused on a deficit model, we're not actually investing any energy or money into prevention programs. And that's, again, the interesting thing about this scholarship is that it's attracted zero dollars in government funding, not one cent. So we've also managed to raise 
$340,000 in private and corporate donations. So this is a great thing about this scholarship. It's like people power has <laughs> sort of spoken and seen the obvious gaps and said, well, this is a bit of a no-brainer in terms of what needs to happen. Definitely great to see that level of you know, support and commitment from, from communities yeah. and people. In, in terms of that government support, do you think there's a, a lack of understanding still in terms of some of the contributing factors then? I'm a clinician. I've worked for 21 years with, you know, at-risk Aboriginal people. Unfortunately, I've worked with so many, you know, suicidal people that you understand the impulse and you understand the mindset. And I think often what people don't understand is, is the complexity of it and how to then go about providing communities with a range of different intervention strategies that are going to give us our best opportunity to prevent. So I do often see crisis-driven, reactive programs that don't actually have a measurable impact in reducing suicides because government funding doesn't actually require it. Now, you, you mentioned, you know, uh, things such as, you know, access to support services and things like that in, in, in communities. Uh, mm. What are some of the other major contributing factors that, that you're actually seeing in terms of that are impacting the, the mental health and, and the well-being of the mob? I've done a lot of writing on making the distinction between a cause of suicide and a risk factor for suicide and it's important distinction to make because it often informs government policy on these issues. So as an example, we're hearing a lot of things around, you know, alcohol as a cause of suicide. So then what happens is it informs government policy. They restrict alcohol to Indigenous communities and of course there's no reduction in suicide in those alcohol-restricted communities because alcohol is a risk factor. It enables suicide but you need to have a suicidal impulse first in order to be suicidal, so it's not a cause. So what we know, I guess, is that the suicide death data, which sounds like a terrible term, has literally not been analysed in a way that firmly establishes a causal pathway to suicide. Now, if we don't understand that, then we're actually focusing on the wrong things and we're not arming a workforce up around how to reduce things that we know lead to someone becoming suicidal. And look, my hunch would be that it's trauma. My hunch would be that it's depression. And a big factor that we're seeing with Indigenous people is the impacts of racism. Yin Parity's work, for example, has shown us that 30% of depression is accounted for by racism alone. They're now talking about racism as impacting on Aboriginal people in the same way as a traumatic assault. So these are the sorts of things that I guess, from a clinical perspective, you then go, OK, if we know that individuals who become more suicidal feel the impacts of racism at a greater level then from a clinical perspective, I get in there and I teach people to, you know, develop cognitions and, and other strategies around managing racist events. Now, obviously, this year alone has, has been a very concerning year in terms of, you know, mob taking their lives. Uh, are you um, optimistic moving forward in terms of uh, us addressing these rates? Look, yeah, I am. I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic mostly because I think Probably one of the good things within the, the emergence, I guess, of Indigenous media has been fantastic is that, like I said, the mob are actually really interested in it. I'm writing a lot of opinion pieces mostly because I'm seeing that people are saying it's really helpful, Trace, to actually have the words and, and the technical understanding of these things because then they can advocate for their family member or they understand it a little bit better. They know, you know what to do and where to go. The trouble is, though is that there just seems to be an unconscious bias. I mean, you fellas know in Alice Springs, I'm from the Pilgrim myself, most of the programs and services that are available around prevention and early intervention are all city-based. So I think once we actually 
you know, address that as an issue and make sure these programs are mobilised where they need to be, then that's also part of them on being able to see that and advocate for what, what type of services and where they need to be. And I think that's part of the whole, being able to listen to people writing on this stuff and people directing them accordingly. And just finally for you, what, what are your aspirations then for, for this scholarship program moving forward? <laughs> it's, it's just, I'm so proud of it. We were only going to announce one scholarship the other night and we ended up announcing five. Look, that's a contribution just by itself. I was just so blown away. To be honest with you, I, I want this to be national. I want us to have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Indigenous psychologists in remote communities. Currently, it's in Curtin University in Western Australia. We've got five this year. I'm not going to stop there. If anyone from Alice Springs is, is keen to start the Dr Tracy Westerman Aboriginal Psychology Scholarship Program up there, I'd be keen to speak to people about that. I was in Sojourner last week and people were keen on it as well. So I think you put it some, put something real simple. How awesome would it be to have a homegrown Indigenous psychologist from Alice Springs or from you know, one of your remote communities around the Northern Territory. The pride of that is just pretty incredible, isn't it? Definitely. Uh, for, for those who, who do want to get involved then, how can they go uh, about that process? The best way to do it is to speak to um, Ashley Marshall at um, Curtin University Scholarships Office. She's wonderful. So they have been absolutely great. And for people who just want to donate, I mean, I think the great thing about this, we had someone donate $250,000 to this scholarship Seriously, and then we've also had someone who's donating 20 bucks a month out of his pension. That's the great thing about this scholarship is that you can put a dollar into it and you can feel as if you're making an actual difference to future generations of Indigenous kids. Every single dollar makes an impact. $10,000 is an annual scholarship, which is a good scholarship, but the reality of it is is that we need to have financial barriers removed if we're able to get as many Indigenous psychologists as we need. But you can also Google just... Tracy Westerman Scholarship, and then the links to where you can donate using a credit card or whatever is there, go straight to Curtin University. 